Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In this episode of The Vergecast, we talk about Facebook's new Libra cryptocurrency, Senator Josh Hawley's move to amend Section 230, and what is going on with RCS. Dieter actually has a lot of emotions about that. That's The Vergecast coming up now. Hello, and welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Verge podcast situation. At this point, what we're trying to do with the Vergecast, by the way, is uh, just have as many of them as possible in one week. That's, yeah. my, mm. that's my new strategy. With three, we're gonna set week. a record. It, I think this is a record. We had three this week. Anyway, I'm Neil. I am your friend. Paul Miller is here. Hello, Dieter is here. I wish that there was a top level domain uh, that was Hoopla, so we could say that we're the flagship podcast of the Verge. Hoopla. Mm. I feel like your dream can come true. <laughs> you just got to start a country whose acronym is <laughs> perfect. H O. Addy Robertson is here. Hi, Addy. Hi. There's a there's a lot going on this week. A lot of heavy stuff. Some Section 230 things going on. Someone sang us a song. We're, we're going to play. This is a true story. Someone sang me a Section 230 song on Twitter, so we're going to play that later. Look yeah. out for that. Facebook launched a cryptocurrency. I'm going to just tell the listener this. Paul won't tell us what he thinks, but he just keeps laughing and saying, just you wait. So I'm very <laughs> eager to find out what is in Paul's brain. I saw some tweets. But two things I want to point out. One, we published a gigantic story this week from Casey Newton about Facebook moderators at a, a contracting facility in Tampa, Florida. You might have seen in the feed, Casey and I did an entire episode about that story. So listen to that. We're not going to talk about it here because we Casey, we already had Casey on the show. We talked about it at length. Uh, and then we also ran Casey's interview of Adam Masseri from Instagram and Andrew Bosworth from Facebook at Code earlier this week. So we, we've already had two episodes. This is the third one. Let me know if that's too many. I, I didn't want to not give people the show they expect on Tuesday with the interview, and we'd already promised it, so we did it. And then the Casey story hit, and I thought that was really important. I wanted to give it some space. Like I said, we're, we're trying more things. Let me know how you feel about it. Uh, but that Casey story is really important. I encourage you to read it. Uh, three moderators actually went on the record with us, uh, and they allowed us to shoot video of them talking about what it's like to moderate Facebook. So please watch that. That's on our YouTube channel. Listen to that podcast. Read the story. It's all there. Okay. That's that's that stuff. But now we got to talk about Calibra and Libra from Facebook. We got to talk about Josh Hawley's bill to do something. It's Something. Addy made a face. We're going to talk about that. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. But I want to start with something... Much sillier, some gadget news in its way, uh, which is that we, as a as a society, have mm-hmm. decided that we should put computers in everything. Yes. And then now everything has computer problems, like classic 90s computer problems. <laughs> 
And so I just want to start with Samsung tweeting this week uh, that everyone with a, a Samsung smart TV should periodically dig through the menus uh, and launch the virus scanner on their television. <laughs> yeah. Now, I didn't know... This is true, by the way. They tweeted this with a video, like a how-to video, like, your TV is a computer, too. Make sure you periodically check it for viruses and then, like, click through the menus and show you the thing. It was hilarious. We, the whole internet laughed at it. We wrote about it. And then they deleted the tweet. Yeah. Which implies that maybe looking for viruses on your TV is perhaps not more important than dealing with the shame of tweeting about it. You'd rather have your customers suffer viruses <laughs> than get dunked on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you have a virus scanner on your computer, uh, presumably you believe that it itself won't get infected. And so when it runs occasionally, it will be able to properly look for viruses. Like Who watches the Watchmen is what exactly. you Exactly. <laughs> so why not just like run it? Like when the TV is off, it's probably still getting power. All these smart TVs do. Mm. Why not just as soon as someone like turns off the TV at night, just like wait 10 minutes, make sure they're not coming back and then just do it for them. And then tell us if there's a problem, but otherwise just do it. Why not just do it? Why don't borrow the Microsoft model? What if you're in like a, the really good last third of a TV show you're really enjoying and then it like <laughs> exits full screen and runs it? <laughs> How about that? Yeah. I mean, look, Samsung TVs will happily, you know, update the advertising that they show. They'll do random app updates. They'll re I mean, they're computers. Mm -hmm. why, yeah. not, why not run the fire scanner? Uh, you get the feeling that like they added the virus scanner. They thought it'd be fun. And then someone's like, we should tell mm. people about this virus scanner. Because I don't <laughs> – like there's a lot of ties in TVs out there. Samsung sells a lot of TVs. I just don't think you like – You think it was fun? I just like don't Like an Easter egg? The people – like can you imagine like the cool cyber criminal hangout? And they're like, all right, you, iOS, big target, got to find some zero days. You know, Windows 10, got to stay ahead of Microsoft. That's a huge attack surface. You you go in the basement and write the Tizen virus. Look, I would like to say that literally the CIA thought this was important yeah. enough to do. <laughs> That's yeah. true. They did, right? They, they did a the thing where they could attack it and turn the microphones on? Yeah, they, there was an exploit. But didn't you have to be local? Yes. All right. So if the CIA has been in your house, this is very important. The CIA <laughs> has been in your home. Run the virus scanner. That must have been when they wrote the virus scanner. Yeah, probably. It would make sense. Anyway, just deeply funny. I just think that the trade-off of this was embarrassing, so we did we did the tweet, and now people may not know about the virus scanner that we think they should run. Is That's a lot. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's no end-user license agreement on a, uh, uh, a paper towel dispenser. James Vincent wrote this story. Uh, there's a paper towel dispenser in the world that uh, is only licensed to use Torque, T-O-R-K, uh, branded paper towels, uh, and mm -hmm. it will spit out a little receipt that tells you so. Because it has a it has terms of service. That's too much. You should just go look at that picture and, and think about where we are as a like a human civilization. Yeah, Dieter, do you want to talk about the light bulbs? This is like the third okay. silly one this week of these. <laughs> so, G felt like it needed to make smart light bulbs, so it did. And everything that you know has a computer needs to be able to be factory reset, right? Because you just you want that. And they they made a method for it. And then they're like, wait, this method is stupid. Let's make a different method for it. And they made it just as stupid. And their <laughs> method was you like turn it off and then turn it on for two seconds and then turn it off for eight seconds and then turn it on and then turn it off. And you repeat that some number of times. But instead of just describing this process to you and say repeat it three times, they have you watch a YouTube video because that's how all how-to content has to be delivered now. That's the law. <laughs> 
where they just they, they like tell you to do it. So like the idea is you're going to be sitting there with your phone watching it and they're like, turn it on, turn it off. But watching it out of that context, it's just the most dystopian thing ever. It's just a silent video with some you know <laughs> tinkling music in the background and a person saying, turn it on. So th- there's 11 steps of this, right? Turn we, it on. we could go through all of them. It, it would take too long and be painful. Turn it off. There's a there's eleven <laughs> steps, which which implies that Turn it on. ten or fewer of these steps were possible that they could happen randomly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't want false positives. Right. Oh, those dumb kids always flipping the lights. Wait, wait, this is exactly what Dan eight, Seifert said: the, is kids will just flip light switches all the time, and they didn't want that to happen. That's his theory. Yeah. No, no, it's it's totally. I believe that theory completely. But my suggestion to all future smart home gadget makers is you have a checklist. All right. Is there Wi-Fi? Do we need it? Yeah. Okay. Is there Bluetooth? Yeah. Is there thread? Nobody uses thread. We don't need that. But like go down the list. And at the end of the list is how is it factory reset? And then ask yourself what kind of YouTube video you're going to have to make for the factory reset. Can I just clarify the, the change? The old firmware had you turn it on and off 13 times. The new uh-huh. firmware has you do it 11 times. And you had to sit there and count it because they didn't just tell you. <laughs> pretty good yeah they should just have a button i think is the answer buttons are good yeah catchy pattern shaving a haircut two bits oh there you go is that eight seconds Uh, doesn't have to be eight seconds you just need to oh i see oh when you flip the switch i get it that's pretty good what if your kids are like extremely rhythmic then that's good it's a reward (laughs) it's a reward (laughs) (laughs) my children are a barbershop quartet (laughs) (laughs) all right Let's, Paul. Yeah. That's that's enough fun stuff. Let's talk about how Mark Zuckerberg is going to completely upend the global financial system. So this has been public for a long time. Facebook had a huge reorg, and Kevin Wheel, who's in charge of product Instagram, moved over to start a blockchain division of Facebook. So they're clearly going to do something. On Tuesday, they announced what that something is, which is a cryptocurrency called Libra. Uh, mm-hmm. It is controlled by a 27-member consortium located in Switzerland. A cabal. A cabal. It's a cabal that includes like Visa and MasterCard and Stripe, like a bunch of companies. No banks, mm-hmm. notably no banks are involved in this. That will be, Facebook insists, like we're just one voting member of this, even though they're the ones who built it. And Facebook mm-hmm. is building a wallet for its currency called Calibra. Right. That will be, that's the Facebook product. And presumably be able to like pay for stuff around Facebook with it. And that's a subsidiary of Facebook and also a voting member. So I think Facebook ends up with two votes. See? 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 In the cabal. Mark's not working. Yeah, but it's, it's two out of like 22. <laughs> and they hope to, they claim to hope to have 100 in the in the, the Libra Association by launch. So I'm, Paul, I, I hate to keep people from hearing what you have to, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. But just to finish it out, a thing mm. that is true is that, Facebook announced this thing. It was a big deal. They said a bunch of stuff about how they want to work with governments and regulators. And then literally politicians around the world were like, wait, no, don't do that. Right? Mm. So like Maxine Waters, who is like the House uh, Banking Committee, she was like, I want a moratorium on this product until I can hold hearings. The finance minister of France was like, this seems like another sovereign currency. No, we can't have that. And a big Mm -hmm. distinction between your Bitcoins and this Facebook product is like, Bitcoins are not classed as a currency because there's no one controlling it. It's like an asset. But this has this like Swiss Illuminati situation that is deciding <laughs> what other currencies they'll peg it to. 
So like, it's a big yeah. thing. And so I was tweeting that like it seems like Facebook was unprepared for this massive regulatory backlash. And there's a debate, and I've heard from some smart folks that Facebook was anticipating this backlash, and effectively they left avenues of attack open that they think they can depend. And you have to really believe Facebook is playing 4D chess with the world financial system, which is, I think, very interesting. So there's they made this big announcement, and there's mm. already this immediate sort of like global, we don't want Facebook to control our currency backlash. Yeah, I don't know about like 40 chess, but there is definitely in, in throughout all of the their language and in their quote unquote white paper and stuff, like they very much talk about how willing they are to work with regulators. And obviously, as opposed to something like Bitcoin, which is not controlled by any one person, it has a, a vector for control by regulators. You know, the so so this is a a, a currency. I, I don't really think of it as a cryptocurrency. Also, very interestingly, the actual data structure underlying it is not a blockchain. <laughs> because as something that, and, and full disclosure on my part, I'm a huge Bitcoin fan. So you should just know that about me. You, you, um, something that Bitcoin people point out a lot is that most uses of the blockchain, if, they're, if, if it's a centrally controlled thing, blockchain is an inefficiency, really. And, and so and you what you really want is just a high speed, high access database because it's centrally controlled. And so and in this case, they issue a currency, this Libra Association issues this currency and it's backed by a basket of assets. And so ideally, th it, there'll be some sort of one to one peg where when you pay in 10 US dollars to get 10 Libra, they add 10 US something like something equivalent to 10 US dollars to that basket of assets to back the the Libra that you've purchased. But of course, if you're holding a basket of assets, it's obviously centralized because you're not going to have so, like, you know, a whole, like you can't globally distribute that or decentralize the, the holding of, of money in that way. Wait, so Paul, let me see if I understand. I'm going to try to say it to see if I understand it. You can tell me if I'm wrong. So mm -hmm. with a regular currency or a bank, you centralize it and you can move things around faster because you own the database and then all the trust is in the bank. Like you as the, the person holding the currency trusts the government or the bank that it's going to be there. With Bitcoin, right. it's trustless, right? So there's this blockchain that anybody can read. And so the, in, mm -hmm. the inefficiency is that you don't need trust in a single entity, right? Right, right. Right, I got, I, I'm just making sure I have this right. So you're saying Facebook is like the Libra Foundation, is yeah. the thing that you trust. And so they've, they've built it on that model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like one way to think about it is like, how long does it take like a few people to like, like if it, let's pick a, a random word out of the dictionary and get a few people to agree which, which word you picked, you know? So like I picked elephant. Okay. Five people. We all, it's very easy for us to communicate amongst ourselves and decide that. But if you're in a huge room with like a thousand people, how quickly can you get that information everybody in that room to all agree to that same thing other than just going on stage and announcing it over the loudspeaker, which is centralization. So if you want high throughput shared decision-making, you either want centralization or, um, or you're screwed. And so, so what's so, so what's interesting is, I don't know, Bitcoin people are so stoked on Libra and I, I couldn't even like quite figure it out myself. And I, I, I don't really know, but it's sort of like Facebook spent billions of dollars probably i don't know how much money in time they've spent developing this 
they developed something I don't think is as good as Bitcoin on technical merits. Um, and it doesn't have most of the good properties that people go to Bitcoin for, other than like b- being a stable coin, if, if that's what you want. But it also has this aspect where it makes any, like a, a lot of the um, alternatives to Bitcoin look really silly because they are centralized and they're using blockchain as like a window dressing. They're saying, hey, look at us, we're a decentralized cryptocurrency, but really they actually are just as centralized as something like Libra. And then also simultaneously, Facebook is going as like a full on challenge against like central banks. So they're saying, we want to be a privately held global central bank that issues its own currency. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Meanwhile, Bitcoin can sit back, well, we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to be that. And, but at the same time, you know, Libra kind of makes central banks look silly because as far as I know, they actually, you know, Libra's currency is actually backed by something. It's backed by fiat currencies, but at least Dick, it's backed by something. Oh, that makes <laughs> well, no sense. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Libra is backed by more imaginary ideas. Like, of course, that's all That's all anything is backed by. We agree so, that this is a unit of exchange. So does the Libra Association control who can process currency through this the way that, say, credit card processing companies can refuse to deal with organizations? As far as I know, they have full control over what is written to the the database or the, the, the non-blockchain blockchain of, of Libra. It's, so to join the association, it's $10 million, and that allows you to run a validating node, which is like something like I run my own Bitcoin node. I just have like a random server I bought off of Newegg for like $200, and I, I validate the Bitcoin blockchain myself at home. But to do that in the, the with the Facebook model, and I think partly to keep high throughput, but also for for their trust model and to be able to accommodate the wishes of regulators, and to basically have a blockchain or a, a, have a database that they can change the records of, they have a very small set of of people running these nodes. So here's my like big question: If it's not a blockchain, what is it? It's a it's a, a Byzantine fault tolerant data structure. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard <laughs> Does, to describe. Doesn't that literally describe blockchain? <laughs> but th- no, this, it's very yeah, different. The, <laughs> okay. Blockchain is also a Byzantine fault tolerant data structure. I mean, so here, here's here's one way to put it. Google.com is a crypto website because it's backed by a distributed database. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, like when I, when I go to Google.com, I use crypt- all sorts of cryptography and uh, a consensus algorithms and stuff like that. But what is interesting about Bitcoin is that it's also permissionless, which this does not have the aspect of being permissionless. Right. And they say they can switch it over to be permissionless, right? They they hope to. One of the things is, so there's this concept of proof of stake. This is a, something that Ethereum has been trying to do for, for a long time. So uh, Bitcoin is famously backed by proof of work, which is a very energy intensive, high computation, some would say wasteful. Computers are working very hard to verify the Bitcoin blockchain through proof of work. Proof of stake just is more like I'm betting that this blockchain hasn't been hacked. And so because you create, I don't really understand proof of stake. And partly the problem is, is nobody's actually solved proof of stake and has it like working in a big, important cryptocurrency. So Ethereum's working towards it. And so I think similarly, the Libra Association claims to be working on proof of stake, and then they hope to maybe move Libra to permissionless eventually. That is a very big pie in the sky 
claim. Uh, they're basically hoping to invent technology and then also get rid of all of their selfish interests that are currently involved in this so yeah. that they can relinquish it to the community. When I think of uh, solving problems that have never been solved before, I think of 27 company consortiums <laughs> in Switzerland. Truly, right. that's that's the way to go. Do you think this, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin, Compared to Ethereum. Well, so Ethereum has the, the whole concept of, of smart contracts. It has a, a, compu a whole computer language and you can run more complicated applications on it and you can make more elaborate um, ICOs, and, and which are not really <laughs> doing very well right now. So there is a, a smart contracting language for Libra. Bitcoin also has a smart contracting language. It's just not typically called that and it's very simple and minimal. Um, so Libra has something called Move, and so they wrote their currency in in this language called Move. And so theoretically, they can do more things with with Move. But for now, um, developers don't have access to making applications with the Move language. And and as far as I know, they're only doing the currency with it. So they might open up more more of the sort of Ethereum style utilities. But uh, but they haven't. But at all that said, like Ethereum, I think of, um, and and this is something where again, this is coming from a, a big big Bitcoin believer. So take that take that as you will. But uh, Ethereum has some problems with centralization, and so I do think, and also uh, was it Tron or no EOS? Yeah, EOS also is another smart contracty blockchain type thing that also has a lot of, um, has something closer to this Libra model of having sort of a consortium of validating nodes. And um, I, those could feel the heat if Libra does what they do and it does it better and the centralization is the same. It, if I'm correct about the centralization being the same, uh, then um, that could be a problem for those blockchains. So I think the technical details here are really interesting and like deeply fascinating and the sort of like regulators are mad because you've created a new global bank that issues currency, <laughs> which again, most governments don't like it when you do that to them. So we'll just like see how mm -hmm. that goes. But on the consumer side of things, like Facebook has Messenger, they have WhatsApp, they have Instagram private messages. They're just going to light it up and say, now you can pay your friends, right? And you have to do it in like mm -hmm. Disney dollars or whatever instead of real money. And that's just going to, is that just going to, like the problem with all the other stuff, there's no killer app for Bitcoin, right? Like people aren't really, except for that one family, Vox wrote about them this week. There's like one family that sold all their assets and now travels around the world on Bitcoin. Or, like there's like that, there's those folks. But this is just going to be a transactional platform for Facebook. An instant scale. Right. Well, so so Bitcoin talks a lot about the the unbanked. Um, some of their examples are like remittance is a big thing. So there is an aspect that even though we have these centralized banks that theoretically could be running on really streamlined, fast and secure databases because they are centralized, they're really bad and slow. And so there's a lot like banks could either get better or they will, I think, be disrupted by either Bitcoin or something like Libra. So like, you know, like Western Union or or like payday loans. Like, I think that's something that Facebook sees it itself competing with. And I think they could actually compete pretty effectively with. And then they also talk a lot about like people who do not have access to traditional banking for whatever reasons, banking has not come to them. And so if Libra works better for those people, uh, I think that's, I mean, I think that's great. I, I think that's some of the cool stuff that, you know, that's happened also with, with Bitcoin. Like a lot of people, if they, if they're in a country and their currency is going bad, 
they want to, they really kind of want to get on U.S. dollars, but maybe their government makes that hard, or maybe the U.S. government makes that hard for them to be on U.S. dollars. If it's easier on Libra or it's easier on Bitcoin, I think they will go to those. I just feel like there's something inherently scary about, I'm in a country, you know, the government's topsy-turvy, the money's going Mm bad. I'm going to put all my assets against my Facebook password. Just feels just riskier than I want it to, right? It, of course it's risky. It's not ideal. But I think, you know, if, if that if you don't have any alternatives, if Facebook makes it easier to buy Libra than it is for you to buy U.S. dollars or Bitcoin, then I think Facebook wins in that situation. Yeah. I don't know. There, there's just a part of this where it's such a it's such a moment of, for Facebook to not have the trust it needs to do something like this. And they're, right. they're barreling ahead with it. And, like, that is – I think it's Sherrod Brown – in Congress was like, Facebook is already too powerful. Why would we give them our money? Mm. And like, that's just, that's going to set up a series of hearings and inquisitions that they're going to have to deal with. Well, it also seems like the big thing is going to be out. It's going to be in all the companies that or the countries that use Facebook for internet. It's like the U.S., it has implications, but it seems like it's really scary when you get to places that already where Facebook is the internet and now Facebook's also your money. Right. And those are, what, what is it? Facebook, internet, internet dot work yeah like oh, facebook yeah. runs a non-neutral internet for people <laughs> right. where facebook services are free and everything else costs money like at some point facebook is most of your government right this is what i'm saying eventually there'll be one company and then we'll merge it with the mm-hmm. government and that'll right. be great and then bitcoin will take it out <laughs> but then facebook also wants an external supreme court so then they're going to set up a government to run facebook a shadow well they've already set up the libra consortium mm-hmm. so then the, the the real government of the world is called libra I mean, this is already a YA novel. Like, I don't know what we're doing sitting here talking about this when we could be writing our YA novel and making this money right now. <laughs> it's it's right there for you. It is real life. By the way, Paul, your point about energy consumption, Mary Beth Griggs, our science editor, wrote a piece. It does appear that Facebook system will be more energy efficient than Bitcoin. Does Bitcoin is notoriously power hungry? Right. The counter argument from the Bitcoin perspective is that uh, Bitcoin harnesses what is, in in a sense, sort of like waste energy. It's energy that is sort of geographically locked in a certain location. Bitcoin, you have to use the cheapest electricity to mine competitively. And typically, the cheapest electricity is electricity that is not usable for powering homes in, in, in that sense. So while Bitcoin uses a ton of energy, it's not necessarily competing for like the high premium difficult to get energy, if yeah. that makes sense. It does, but, but- as far as how much electricity the two systems use, Facebook uses way less. Yeah, and I think the, the sort of growing amount of energy Bitcoin is using, because it's not like a flat amount, right? It's like a, it's curving up. So I think right. that- The that, hash rate is actually, uh, going up faster than the um, the U.S. dollar value of Bitcoin. All of this seems just very much like maybe we should turn it over to a group of bankers in Switzerland. But <laughs> all right, I, I mean, got to say, uh, yeah. Tom Warren wrote a piece. Like the action in banking tech is like very high. Like Apple's coming out with its card with Goldman Sachs. In case you were wondering, mm-hmm. if you really want a trustworthy bank, that Goldman Sachs. That's the one. Mm. <laughs> um, but Apple's Apple's coming out of the card. Obviously, the Apple card coming out of Goldman Sachs. People are very excited about it. A bunch of British banks are showing up in the U.S. Tom Warren just wrote a piece about how British banks are far ahead of the curve in many places. Th- there is a lot of action in just sort of payments. And I think this is a reflection of, once again, how big these companies are. They're, they're looking for more ways to just, like, capture you. And mm. obviously, your financial 
like tra- like transaction history is like deeply important. I will say Facebook, you know, their white papers like we'll never use this data for anything. It's like Facebook, you, <laughs> no one <laughs> believes you. Well, also they they have this they do this whole rigmarole. You can have pseudonymous accounts, right? So you can have multiple accounts on Libra, and they don't have to be tied to your identity, right? But to sign up for those accounts, you have to use your identity because of KYC law, like know your customer and anti-money laundering laws. So you, so while your accounts aren't tied to your identity, they are also tied to your identity. And therefore always everything you ever do with Libra will be exactly traceable to a specific identity. Okay. Well, Libra's not coming out for a while. We'll mm-hmm. see. I mean, and the, by the way, that $10 million buy-in, a bunch of these companies in the consortium have not even put the money forward yet. Like they're conditional. So like many steps to go. There are undoubtedly going to be, I would say, very entertaining government hearings where the United States Congress is going to pretend to know what, what blockchains are. Just like, get ready for that. That's going to be great. So we're going to cover it closely, but I think we've done enough here. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about whatever is going on with Josh Hawley in Section 230. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we're back. Addy, you, McKenna Kelly wrote a story for us about Senator Hawley's new bill that would drastically change Section 230, which we talk about constantly on the show. It's the law that provides immunity of platform companies from the things their users post. So once again, I will provide this example. When you look at a Verge webpage, everything that we publish, we're liable for if we get it wrong. And everything in the comments, we are not because that's user-generated content. So Section 230 is the law that keeps us from being responsible for user-generated content. Platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they're all user-generated content, so they're, they're not liable for what their users post. But they have, 230 gives them the opportunity to moderate that content and take down the bad stuff. At will, right? I just want to lay this out. That's what 230 says. And encourages them to do it. And it, it, it was written so that they would do it. Anyway, there was a writer from Vox, Jane Koston, who tweeted about 230 last night, and I retweeted it, and I said, sing it with me. And a Verge reader 
sang it for me. Can we can we just play that right now? Social media platforms are not required to be neutral by law. There is no publisher platform distinction by law. I love you, Jackson Hayes. Just keep that. That's in your heart, right? You've heard the song. Play it one more time. Social media platforms are not required to be neutral by law. There is no publisher platform distinction by law. Okay, that's the law. You understand that's the law. Just to be clear, social media platforms are not required to be neutral by law. Yep. There is no publisher platform distinction by law. That's the That's the song. I, I've, I had to look it up because I have a hard time hearing lyrics, but also that is a beautiful song. It was beautiful. Uh, and uh, again, Jackson, I appreciate you. Thank you for doing that. So that's the law as it stands now. Senator Hawley put out a bill. It's called the Stop Internet Censorship Act. No, no. It's called the Ending Support for Internet Censorship Act. Oh, Ending Act. Support for Ending... Okay. Unlike all the support that we have now for True. the Internet Censorship So what would this bill do? So what it would do is create a class of very large companies. The intent is very large social media companies that would no longer be eligible for Section 230 protections unless they were certified by the FTC and then agreed to not take any action that would discriminate against or suppress political viewpoints. So they'd have to like file an application, presumably pay for it. Yes. Like pay a fee. And then the FTC which regulates trade, just putting that out there, would then like vote? Yes. I think you. they're trying to create a system where it isn't something that can split purely down partisan lines, but it's still something that they're going to have to vote on. So the FCC has five commissioners, typically three of the majority party and two of the minority party. So right now it's three Republicans, two Democrats. You would submit your application and like you would have to get three Republicans and one Democrat to agree that you are not biased in your moderation. Yes. And and your application is a moderation policy that you're proposing? No, it's like proof that you're not doing it. How often do you have to prove it? Every two years. Okay. And if uh, one of your moderators does something that is politically biased, this is my favorite part, you don't lose your protection if you name that person publicly huh. and fire them. What? <laughs> yeah. So it's like... How responsible do you want Facebook to be? Just responsible enough to shame its employees if they screw up. It's wow. employees that it doesn't directly employ. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. So here's the first line. Paragraphs one and two of Section 230 shall not imply in the case of a covered company, and that is if you have more than $500 million in revenue or more than 300 million users or 30 million in the U.S. So that's you have to, to Twitter, Facebook, Google. The New York Times, you're saying, would have hit that threshold? I can't they have tell. Because the wording they use is just the same wording as 230, which applies to newspapers like the Times. The New York Times company had more than $500 million in revenue um, based on their 2018 numbers. And it's an or. It doesn't say they need a certain user threshold. So I'm just not clear why the New York Times comment policy wouldn't fall under this. Okay. So it's very broad. It says, these parts of Section 230 shall not... Apply in the case of a covered company unless the company has, in effect, an immunity certification from the FTC that the company does not moderate information provided by other information by other people in a manner that is biased against a political party, political candidate, or viewpoint. So you have to apply it to get this, like, immunity from liability for what people post. And then Facebook has to repeal its rule against white supremacy. Right, because white supremacy yeah, is it's a, a political There's... viewpoint. So basically what this bill would do is it would make Facebook illegal. Right, unless they get this certification. Because there's no way 
Facebook can operate or Twitter can operate or YouTube can operate if they are liable for every single thing that's on their platform. So that, that's the, the threat. Right? Either you do this or your business model like, exposes you to massive liability. Like, they will just get sued for everything that happens on their platform and they'll go out of business. So that's or the, the legal system will go out of business and yeah. accelerate toward anarchy. <laughs> that's true. And then Libra will take over. This is perfect. <laughs> no, Bitcoin. So, but then there's this one exception. So you have to prove that you're not motivated against any political parties or viewpoints, including white supremacy, which is a political viewpoint. In action of a provider, this is an exception, in action of a provider of an interactive computer service that disproportionately restricts access to or the availability of information from political parties, candidates, or a few points, shall not be considered biased if the action is necessary for business. Huh. This is like the most insane carve-out of all time. <laughs> like, the, well, like the commerce clause. Yeah, it's necessary for business. Or the information is not speech should be protected under the First Amendment of the con- Constitution. Which uh, is definitely a thing that platforms are always equipped to handle in all of its nuance. Again, uh, <laughs> We've been trying to write speech laws under the First Amendment for like over 200 years, and I would not say we've done a good job. Like we've we've stumbled our way towards this point, being like Facebook, you figure out what business necessity means under this. It just seems wholly unworkable. So that's the thing. There's a process you got to do it every two years. You got to the FTC has to like staff up to handle these applications and review cases against it. This is a lot, and it's unclear Mm. how big. What com- like does Vox Media? We don't have five hundred million dollars in revenue. If you want to get, if you want to make it so that we do, by just writing us checks, we'll take it. And I'll, <laughs> I'll solve this problem. Uh, we like it wouldn't be us, right? We'd still get to do whatever. But the Times might fall under it. Other pl- Reddit might fall under it. I'm also not clear on how it works with giant conglomerates that include something that may be this service. Given that now, like three media companies own everything. Yeah. Oh, so like. Warner Media might fall under this. If it has something that is an interactive service, like which is literally anything that produces user-generated content in terms of Section 230, and I don't know why it would be different here. Yeah, so Disney would definitely, like if there's, if there's a comment section anywhere on a Disney site. Yeah, you have to, yeah. Pre- you have to submit your, so that this is a lot. Okay. Wait, does this apply only to online, or does it also apply to like Disney theme parks? And they have to they have to make sure that they allow any political speech in a Disney theme park. It is interactive computer services, so uh, maybe a Disney park is an interactive computer service, but I don't think it is. <laughs> I mean, they are mm. robots moving around. You interact with them. Think about it. Think about it. So, Addy, you tweeted McKenna's story. This is where I was going to start with. Addy's tweet of McKenna's story literally was just ah. <laughs> Like that's all it was. <laughs> Tell me why you had that reaction to this. It was not, in fact, anything that was in the bill text. It was that when he introduced it, he introduced it with a really terrible description of what Section 230 is, which was that with Section 230, tech companies get a sweetheart deal that no other industry enjoys, complete exemption from traditional publisher liability in exchange for providing a forum free of political censorship. This has nothing to do with Section 230. Can I play the song again? Social media platforms are not required to be neutral by law. There is no publisher platform distinction by law. So just listen to the song. That's what the law says. Josh Hawley is not listening to the song. We can send him the song. I'll burn a CD for him. But that's really the thing here, right, is that no one is really happy with how companies are moderating their platforms. I think that's just a truth. Yeah. Right? They they don't seem to be doing a good job. I actually agree with Senator Hawley. They're not transparent at all. 
That's a th- it's a criticism he has that I think is very, very valid. The conflict, as near as I can understand it, is that I think the platform should do a better job of moderating, by which I mean more. More moderation has like a real human cost, right? That's Casey's story. There is a massive human cost to moderating these platforms. It's destroying people. You should read that story. You should listen to that podcast. It's 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 harmful to people to moderate these platforms. So if you want more, you got to deal with that. On the other hand, I think Senator Hawley and a bunch of conservatives want them to moderate less or moderate in a way that favors them. And so you get bills like this that say a lot of conservative speech really overlaps with stuff you're taking down. And so we're, we're going to take away the entire the entire foundation of your business if you don't prove to us that you're not harming us. And I think that is that's just deeply in tension. Yes. And it's also framed in, again, a way that does not describe how the law currently works and does not describe it in a way that suggests that there is some kind of legal precedent here that Facebook is failing at, that clearly we have to right this great wrong that we promised them in the 90s when we told Facebook that... uh, (laughs) Which didn't exist. Yes, that they could... uh, (laughs) had to moderate neutrally, like, it is a really terrible partisan framing of this law. So what's interesting about it, by the way, can I, re- there is a definition of business necessity. I'm going to read it to you, and you just you just think about it. The term bi- necessary for business, by the way, necessary for business, a great album name if you're starting a band. The term necessary for business refers to a lawful act that advances the growth, development, or profitability of a company, but does not include any action designed to appeal to or gain favor from persons or groups because of their political beliefs, political party membership, or support for political candidates. See, that's just missing the, I mean, we're in a climate where politics has become so necessary for business. Can CNN... Now owned by Warner Media, now owned by AT&T, certainly over $500 million. Can CNN have comments on their website? Can Fox News have comments on their website? Well, or, Can or, Reddit have R the Donald, which is definitely designed to appeal to gain favor from persons or groups because of their political beliefs? That's like very dangerous territory to be in. Yeah, I, I really think the Reddit model is very interesting because you have, in some sense, relatively loose moderation for the overall site, but then you have very tight moderation per subreddit because it's user-defined moderation in a sense. But under this bill, there's no carve-out for you can let your users moderate themselves. Or you could ban all political speech and that is not discriminatory. Yeah, you could just ban it all, which is like one outcome. But what if the personal is political? <laughs> all right, Paul, you just you just keep mining your Bitcoin or whatever you're doing over there. So, Addy, one thing, one thing that's interesting to me is it seems like no one likes this bill. Absolutely no one. So let's cue this up. Uh, Ron Wyden, who wrote to Section 230, does not like it. That is not a surprise. <laughs> we'll fine. just move on from that one. <laughs> uh, Justin Amash, who is a Republican, also does not like it. He says the thing that is actually a pretty standard at this point, kind of libertarian conservative point, which is that we're bringing back the fairness doctrine, basically, that we're now going to create a committee that tells companies that are private companies what they can do politically. Yeah. Um, So he calls it a sweetheart deal for big government. The FTC... Government always gives itself a sweetheart deal. All right. (laughs) Uh, Former Republican FTC commissioner, Joshua Wright, also calls it uh, death by bureaucratic bureaucratic board or the plaintiff's bar, Um, says it might feel good to some conservative politicians, but there will be a terrible hangover for everyday internet users. Confusingly, Gab, the 
less moderation The right wing Twitter clone. That's what um, it is. Guy like Twitter Reddit? Yeah. Anyway, so at first it opposed it and said it was terrible. And then I think it didn't realize that there was actually – that this was only supposed to apply to big companies. So then someone pointed out it out and took it back and now they say they support it. <laughs> good. Well, good. Gab is like, we admit we will never have 300 million users or $500 million. This, this, does, li- this does line up with Gab's like stated – Moderation policy, which is nothing. It's the only yeah, right. It will, uh, uh, nothing outside of legal free speech. Okay, and then a bunch of Democrats also think it's dumb. Yes, but like mostly, obviously, what's interesting is Holly is Republican. Republicans think it's dumb. I will say this: I'm going to give him credit for this. I do not think he wrote this bill expecting it to be taken seriously. It is so over the line, like it is unworkable. I don't, I, I don't even know how the FTC. I don't even know why the it's the FTC doing it. It's like a conversation starter. Yeah, I think I think the people are angry that they don't know how the companies work. And this is a way to like move the window of we will just take 230 away from you. Right? Like here's a bill that would just take it away from you unless you do what we want. And might this prompt companies to start being more transparent about their policies? Might it prompt companies to be more transparent about who's doing the work? I I think Casey's story his two stories, one in February and one this week, prove the point fairly conclusively that no one knows how these companies work or who these people are or what their working conditions are like. And more transparency is desperately needed there because those people are horribly mistreated. So, like, I'll give him the credit, right? I'm being very charitable because I think this bill is ridiculous. But the most charitable reading is he doesn't expect this to be taken seriously. He expects a lot of people to start talking about how would you take away 230 or how would you demand transparency? That is the most charitable reading of this. What do you think? The weird thing is that as far as my read of the bill is, it doesn't really talk that much about transparency. Like it mentions the certification process, but it does not seem focused on that at all. Like the less charitable read is that he doesn't expect it to pass, but he's trying to score points. Right. He's trying to score the conservative speeches unfairly biased against some platforms points. Yes. I mean, they could just write a law making Twitter illegal, which is something I would support. (laughs) But like that's effectively where they're going is either you do what we want or we'll make your business illegal. And there has the kind of means testing that's like the the punish Facebook method, right. which Elizabeth Warren also has in a slightly different way. Right. That if we're you're so big, to, we'll break you up. Trying to create ways that we can just carve out these like three companies and make them pay. <laughs> I don't oppose <laughs> it. So, Paul, we've talked I've, we've talked about on this show a lot about this. How do you feel about a panel of federal trade commissioners reviewing moderation policies and deciding if they're fair to speech or not? Yeah, my my litmus test for a, a one of my litmus tests for a law is does the government do more than it's doing right now or less? And it's this sounds like a more, so I'm I would say it's substantially more. <laughs> like one of the clauses like the FTC will staff appropriately for this. And that's right. like, well, Facebook has fifteen thousand moderators. <laughs> right. I, I do think it's interesting. Like you said, like if, if it's a conversation start, like uh, have you guys ever heard of the McDonald's principle? Like if you're with a group of friends and you can't decide where to go out to eat, you suggest McDonald's. And everybody's like, that's a terrible idea. And, but it, it sparks ideas. People have alternatives because they've, of course, they could beat McDonald's. So I, wow. maybe people, but it's, it's an interesting, and it's also, it's bringing up this idea of this, there being like that, in a sense, like everything is speech. And that you, when you are publishing, sorry, platforming, whatever <laughs> you want to call it, when you, when you. Host. You want me to play the song again? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll do it. When you host content, whether or not you created it, right, it is in a sense speech. 
And I think that's interesting. I don't want to to have some sort of bonkers, uh, like legal bonanza of libel. But um, I do think that I, I do think it's an interesting way to think about it. But and, and, it's, and it's something that all this talk about Section two thirty, no matter how many times people get it wrong, Neli, I do think it has made people think more about that concept. But uh, obviously, the solution is uh, decentralized open source communication protocols. Perfect. So, Addy, what what happens next here? It seems like probably nothing. Yeah. Alternately, it seems like, yeah, maybe someone else will introduce a bill that competes with this. Maybe it will be like net neutrality or phone unlocking or a few other sort of hot tech issues where everybody just cycles through trying to find their version. And then maybe eventually something passes. Yeah. Although now it seems like nothing ever passes. That's the way it goes. You can see how Ron Wyden, who has said to us, like, if they don't start doing a better job, we will figure out ways to change 230. Like, he's maybe he's going to be like, Josh. I'm assuming senators only call themselves by their first name. He'd be like, Josh, get in my office. And Josh would be like, Ron. And be like, this bill is a mess, but I like where your head's at. Like, is is it that or is it this is just ridiculous to go home, Josh Hawley? I'm not sure. I'm Because I'm not really sure how much you can work when the goal here is clearly not to find a workable version of Section 230. It is based purely on getting the outcome that you want. Yeah. So I, if we're taking it charitably, maybe. And if we are taking it really charitably, then we could have a version of this that is focused actually on the transparency aspect. That is about if you have this, if you're really big and you do a lot of moderation, we need to have some kind of system wherein you will tell us how all this stuff works. Yeah. I think the fundamental conflict is some people want the platforms to moderate more and, and the other side wants them to moderate less. And this law is the focal point. What were you going to say, Paul? I think one interesting, I don't know how to make this a law, and I definitely don't know how to make this a law involving less government, but I feel like a concept that sounds fair to me is that when you make your first post on a site, there are terms and conditions for that content. And I feel like those terms and conditions should apply in perpetuity for that content. Like if they change the rules later and they've got new rule, you know, and, and like, I feel like that's somehow the framework of at least how what seems intuitive fair because when you when you offer content to a platform you you have some sort of um and it's obviously wrong but you have some sort of sense that this is mine and will remain the same i, I don't know i don't quite know how to articulate it it no. seems like there's going to be trouble with in that case the fact that there are just spammers and very clear bad faith actors that are constantly trying to game the rules and it yeah, seems like true. if the issue is that you can't retro, like you can't evolve these things as tech evolves and as people, you get into this game, then you're gonna kind of end up being stuck with an unworkable platform. My answer, Paul, is that the the way that you solve it with less government is more competition, and hence, you break them up. Okay, <laughs> it's <laughs> true. It. It's a fact, but it it is also true to Addy's point that Elizabeth Warren's proposal to break up these companies is literally like the same kind of if you're this big and have this many people we're breaking you up. And like, there's only three of those companies. I will say that hers is a little bit clearer on there literally only being three of those companies. Yeah. Because 500 million in revenue is obviously that is a very large number for any reasonable person, but that's not like Facebook levels of huge. That's true. And it is interesting. This We should ask Holly what he thinks of the times. Josh, Holly, get on this show. We'll see if we make that happen. Okay. We're taking a break. We'll come back. Dieter's going to yell about RCS. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> Support for this show comes from Slack. 
you're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, Paul. Uh-huh. Every week, my friend, there's a segment right. renowned for its consistency in naming. I just can't find the tab. There's a lot. I have a How lot does of this happen every week? Is that the name of the segment? I just can't find the tab. No. I've had. A, I wrote down a lot of notes for Libra this week, and so now I lost my notes for the segment that I do every week, which is called "Now That's a Smart Kid," <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, about uh, Microsoft and Cano are um, teaming up for like a DIY, a build-your-own Windows 10 PC kit. And I just really like to imagine a, a child um, uh, build a, a, the kit. It kind of looks a little bit like an OLPC, but the, 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 the screen part is, is a detachable, very thick tablet with touchscreen. And, um, and in the back, you can see how it's put together. It's basically a very large Raspberry Pi like thing connected to a very large battery. Um, and a speaker. I mean, the thing is, is that the assembly is you're plugging a speaker into this board, you're plugging a battery into this board, and then you're putting it into a case, and then you're booting it up, and it already runs Windows 10. And I'm not saying that they are lying to these children, <laughs> but, the, but what did you really build? What would you have them do? I want a manual where you can write your own Windows 10 kernel from scratch, and then you boot it. And see if it works. And if you got it wrong, you go back to the start. <laughs> but they already made like a Linux version of this thing. I bought one for my niece and nephew. That's a, that's why the segment, Eli, is called Now That's a Smart Kid. Oh, that's why it's been consistently called Now That's a Smart Kid for so long. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love this thing is what I've decided. It's really cute. Like there, yes, you can build a PC. I mm. doubt many children have access to the money required to like build a great PC right now. So like having a cheap version of you can build a PC, which is like how I started doing stuff, is awesome. If you are a caring and enthusiastic parent, I'd say for $300 – this is great. And if you have a ton of money, get one of these too. But if you have $300, <laughs> you and your child can go on Newegg.com or PC Part Picker. You can get a great PC for $300. And then plug it into one of those like 4K displays that it's like $12 at Costco that tracks everything that you do and has viruses. <laughs> <laughs> but does it come with a Windows 10S license? You know, the popular operating system, Windows 10S? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Dieter. Yeah. RCS. There's, like, there's a bunch of like Google, Googling, I would say. Yeah, Google's just Googling all over the place last week. So 
RCS, Rich Communication Services, the GSMA-approved spec for replacing short message service, SMS, uh, has had a bad rollout. No one is using it. All the carriers are ignoring it. The carriers that aren't ignoring it, half of them are using their own proprietary version of RCS and not something that's compatible with the quote-unquote universal profile. And uh, it's been a mess. So Google, which spent the last year and presumably a year before that trying to get everybody on board and managed to get everybody to promise they'd support it, uh, but they never actually did it, is just going to do it itself. They're just going to offer RCS services to any Android user. They're going to start small in the UK and France, and then they're going to roll it out to other countries. And eventually, if you have an Android phone, you can install Android messages and have Google provide your texting services instead of your carrier. I mean, this is the thing everybody wants. Except that it's not encrypted. <laughs> does, does this mean they could make a, a Google RCS iPhone app and it would work because they're just running the servers anyways? So the answer to that question is probably not. Uh, currently, RCS is modeled on using your phone number as your identity. And that means that everything has to run through whatever your SIM card is attached to because that is that phone number is the key thing that identifies you. In theory, they could in the future do something like what Apple does and create a database online that associates your phone number with a Google ID and then it, it will be able to distribute it via that Google ID. But they haven't announced that yet because they don't want to get sued into oblivion by the EU. Um, and maybe they're not even thinking about doing it. I don't know. Um, but right now, RCS works literally app to app. Like if I want to text you, Paul, my uh, Android Messages app sends a push notification to your phone. Mm -hmm. And if your phone gets it and you have Android Messages, Android Messages will receive that push notification, just like if you got a Netflix push notification. And it'll say, oh, yeah, I'm awake. I'm here. Yeah, I have RCS. Cool. And then we'll start talking directly to each other over RCS. If you don't have RCS, that text mess that push notification will hit your phone and just like get ignored. And then Android messages on my end will be like, oh, sad panda, and then send you a regular text message. All of which is to say it's a decentralized system that depends on like actual phone numbers to work, which means that you are not gonna be able to have multiple devices that you can text from unless you like do wacky QR code things. Right, and that, that QR code stuff like fundamentally just like mirrors your phone, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's like how WhatsApp used to work. Yep. So you said it's not encrypted. It is not end-to-end -end encrypted. It is encrypted in transit, just like, you know, going to a website. But it's not encrypted at rest on the server. So the on, your, on the server where it goes through to get to the other person, like the company that owns that server can look at it. We don't know what carrier's data retention policies are. Google's data retention policies are we delete it as soon as we know that you've received it. Um, and we, you know, get rid of metadata in some short time period as well. Uh, but it might hang on to files for just a little bit longer because, you know, you might, like, close the chat and then want to go back the next day and, like, re-look at that GIF or re-download that file or whatever. Yeah. Can they turn on encryption? There is no technical reason that you could not build an encryption system on top of RCS. Doing it would mean a couple of things. You'd have to figure out what the right system is, and it would be complicated. You'd have to decide whether or not you would try and do what RCS does right now, which is get everybody on board with the GSMA to agree on a standard. Um, and uh, last but not least, if you're Google and you're talking about encrypting every single message on every single Android phone, the platform that owns 85% of the world market, will you be able to stand up to the pressure from, let's say, all all the countries uh, <laughs> not wanting you to do it? <laughs> countries wouldn't do that, Dieter, take it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so this is not quite the iMessaging of Android that we we have been anticipating. It is not. Although, like, it is a default way. It's gonna like a default way to get half decent, pretty good text messaging that has read receipts and typing indicators and better pictures. That will be universal. Does it so, have reactions? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Eventually, in that respect, it may become popular enough to like pressure Apple to support RCS someday, and it like will be an upgrade relative to SMS. But that is a pretty low bar. Where I'm at, like I don't know what else Google could do. Uh, they, I, my conspiracy theory is that this was their plan all along. They just couldn't execute it because people would have gotten mad, and so they just they waited until all the carriers like screwed it up and didn't implement it, and then they're like. Well, I guess we got to do this because um, everybody wants us to. Fine. And that's the next step is they're going to start lighting it up in different countries and see if anybody gets mad. But yeah, like three years ago, five years ago with Hangouts, if the, you know, like what I want to do, what I want Google to do is um, invent a time machine, go back in time and not <laughs> screw Hangouts up, right? Or yeah. go back in time and not screw Gchat up. Uh, but given where they were in, in 2015 is like Hangouts like lost the thread and got really weird and they didn't know what they were doing. Like there's no other resets available to them. They tried to reset with like a, a Google service that was called Allo and all of seven people used it. Allo was not end-to-end -end encrypted either. I mean, I like... Uh, it was if you turned on an incognito chat, but, but it was not default encrypted. I mean, I, th that to me is like the... I mean, you, right. you have switched to an iPhone because yeah. th this is table stakes now, right? Like... Yeah, I, I'm just not going to use a messaging services and end, end encrypted. The thing that I believe is like the default should be end to end encrypted, and so that's why Allo wasn't like acceptable. Is you had to go and install an app, and then you had to switch it into incognito. Um, you know, like WhatsApp is great; it's end to end encrypted. You know, Signal's even better. That's my that's my preferred. Uh, messaging app if I can get anybody to use it. Uh, the only people that I've been able to get to use it are my wife because she loves me and Paul because um, he loves me. Because blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because I love Dieter. Yeah, that's it. What happens next? Uh, what happens next is it gets lit up in the UK and France in the next week or two and then we see if anybody notices do you think cares? they picked the UK because they're so distracted by Brexit that like the the government won't notice? Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, they also like there's a bunch of like there's a bunch of carriers in those countries like the big ones that have already implemented RCS. And if your carrier does runs RCS on its own, like Google will just let them continue to do that. It, it doesn't care. Uh, it doesn't. It, so that's like how it's proving that it's not taking business away from carriers by doing this. Um, but there's a bunch of like smaller carriers and MVNOs and whatever that like. You know, they look at the cost it'll take to, like, rent a Jibe server from Google or, like, build their own and whatever. And they're like, yeah, no, I don't want to spend that. That's stupid. I, I, that, I don't want to spend that money. Google, will you just handle this for us? And Google's like, sure. Yeah. Well, there is an a aspect where the U.S. is largely iMessage. Yeah. Everywhere else is largely WhatsApp and Telegram. China is WeChat. Like where where is RCS like sorely needed? Everywhere and nowhere, I guess is how I'd put it. Um, what's sorely needed is like replacing SMS with something that's IP based, right? With something actually good, and that's like that's the whole thing. Is like if if all the carriers just got together and like we're upgrading SMS and like we're all gonna do it in 2019, and uh, by the way, Google also is supporting it uh, on Android, and we hope Apple gets on board because they're gonna have to. Um, everyone would have been like, cool, so let's see if you do it. But the thing that makes this really complicated is 
the carriers weren't doing that. They were content to have SMS continue to suck. And Google had tried literally everything else possible in messaging. And so they wanted to do this. And so it was Google that was pushing this. So everyone's thinking of this as a Google service. And they're like, no, it's not. But, you know, now it is because they're going to just be offering the services to people. <laughs> it's such a sad story. I'm, I'm sad. I'm excited. I think, I think they got it support at the phone level, too. Right, yeah. so like individual phones have to support it, and now that there's like some guarantee that there's an RCS server on, you know, that every person, every carrier can address, I feel like the phones will come along, and that's like a good thing. Yeah, so actually, the phones don't have to support it anymore. Right now, uh, carriers are approving it phone by phone, but in this new model, uh, all of RCS happens in the quote unquote APK space. So it's just like it's just an app. Huh. And uh, it the app becomes your default SMS client, and it just like listens for the push notification from other Android messages apps. So like before this, I think there was like some security stuff where like they didn't want other you know things to take over SMS. But Google's just like, well, we we could just do this, so we're just gonna do it. Yeah, APK Space yeah. sounds like a great co-working office for Android developers. <laughs> well, APK just Space, just a free like idea. I mean, this whole story is sort of a narrative of like, I'm really at the point, what, 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 uh, my phone number is basically useless. I've got a SIM card, right? But that's like, it's almost like a, like a billing convenience, you know, like we know which device used like four gigabytes of, of YouTube, you know, like, but like, I basically, I just want devices and I want them to have access to the internet, but this whole SIM card, phone number, tight relationship with a phone carrier I, it seems outdated and useless. It seems counterproductive at this point. It also means that desktop, like I use Gchat on desktop. I use chat on desktop so much. And it sounds like this is really just trying to kill that. Yeah. Well, you can do it with the QR code thing. They're not trying to kill it. They just, they, they don't know how to make it work because they, they don't, they tried it and no one used it. So they're like, Right. And they don't own all the servers like Apple does. Yeah. I'm still hoping. Still you know, Paul, I wrote a piece predicting the death of the phone number in like 2012. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't happen. <laughs> Just putting that out there. All right, Dieter, one more Google thing happened this week. Oh, yeah. So apparently they had two tablets that they were working on and um, Computer World uh, and then Business Insider heard that those tablets were canceled, that there was like a, a meeting with all the Google plays working on the tablets. And they're like, you don't, those are gone. You're done. And go work on something else. Go work on the Pixel book. And then Google like confirmed it. They're just like, yeah. We're uh, we're gonna focus on laptops, and then like like the head of hardware, Rick Osterloh, confirmed it again. And you know, no, we promise we're gonna pay attention to you know Chrome OS for third parties and uh, Android for third parties, and you know we're gonna support the ecosystem, blah blah blah. But like today, Google simultaneously announced, like admitted the existence of that. To me, that counts as announcing, and then canceled two tablets. I like this new Rick Osterloh hardware strategy. He's like, yeah. It's Yep. You know, I've got like 50,000 employees that are doing stuff. Like, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like it. I will say that yeah. uh, this also makes me happy because the Pixelbook is good. The Pixelbook is good except for its Bluetooth module. It uh, is still my favorite laptop hardware of the past few years. It needs like an update to make the bezel smaller on the screen. But otherwise, like, don't touch it. Keep everything the same as far as I'm concerned, um, including leave the headphone jack in. Um, the Pixel Slate was a mess. Uh, a huge mess. I actually started using mine again a couple of weeks ago because it's like, this is probably better now, right? Nope. <laughs> no. no. It's never good when you're at the launch event and you pick it up. And you're like, oh, this is very laggy. And they're like, huh, 
Like, yeah. it was just like, I was like, you guys should know. I mean, Android on tablets just has never worked. It has literally never worked. That is true. It has literally never worked. Except like maybe like the very first one with Honeycomb. You're like, oh, maybe. And then like no apps came. I liked the Nexus 7. I have a second gen Nexus 7. It is very slow now. And I do still use it, but I only use it to run the Sonos app. And I only still have it there because I don't understand this. Android supports multi-user on tablets, but not on phones. It does on phones. It's just 90% of OEMs turn it off. On a <laughs> Pixel, you can still do multi-user on a phone. No, I have a I have a, a Nexus 6P, and it does not have it on there. On a Pixel, you can still do it <laughs> on your phone. All right. Maybe I'll, I'll put... Anyway, but I still use the Nexus 7 because I can have the second account that only has the Sonos app. And like sits there. And it's just very slow. And I feel very bad for every guest in my home that's like, can I change the music? I'm like... Some minutes from now, you will. It is true. <laughs> Anyhow, I just, why can't they get this right? It feels like Apple's like charging ahead and, and yeah. Google just like nowhere. And then, yeah, obviously yeah. there's Microsoft, there's Windows tablets, but they're very desktop y still. They're very desktop y. I think that part of it, so Business Insider was like, they, they like, it didn't meet their quality assurance standards. Like they QA'd these tablets and they're like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> like if we hand this out to reviewers, it'll just be the pixel slate all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so like two pieces of news there. One, Google started QAing its tablets, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> and two, I think they know that they're never going to catch up to the iPad. It's always, it's, it's, it's accelerating away from them. And at, at Google's most ambitious, at their like we can we can make the most amazing tablet possible. It's still going to be half as good as an iPad at best, and I think that they just they don't want to be compared to that iPad anymore. Um, and so they're like, nah, yeah. And not and they, to be fair, not only the iPad, the enormous range of excellent Windows tablets that are like available right. that do something very different than that. There's not like a middle ground, yeah. right? There's like Apple's version of the future of computing and whatever is happening now that it's iPad OS. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, Apple tells us, like, oh, just a name change on their website. They're like, this is the biggest name change in the world. So some confusion there. But Apple's like, they've got their vision. Microsoft has an extension of its existing vision, which is like, what if desktop and a tablet, right? There's no space in between. Yeah, it's, I, I'll give Microsoft a little bit more credit than that. But, I mean, I, I get where you're going. Uh, with Chrome OS, they've had two years, maybe a little more, trying to, like, nail a tablet interface and just have it do basic things like not lag three seconds when you're trying to move a window in tablet mode, right? Not not like like three seconds, like the like huge, huge lag and swaths of lag. And the, the first time you, you're like, what the heck? And they're like, we're working on it, but, you know, it's still good in laptop mode, so, you know, we believe we can do it. I was like, okay, sure. Um, but the Pixel Slate, which was released last year, and I reviewed once something with very good hardware, um, you would try and drag a window down from the top, and you'd move your finger to the left of the screen, and then two seconds later, the window would be there. It was yeah. ridiculous. They had two years to figure it out. I just want to clarify before the Microsoft people yell at me. What I mean is Apple's Apple's version of this, indeed, or to your credit, you understood what I was saying. I see what you're saying, yeah. Apple's version is like, what if we start over and like start from the beginning, and like they've like iterated, and Microsoft is, <laughs> what if Windows but touch, and they've done a good job. I'm not saying they didn't do a, they did a bad job. I'm just, like, afraid yeah. of the tweets. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. My own speech is being chilled because the yeah. Windows people are going to be mad at me. Everyone's doing great except for Google. The end. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want me to say. That's right. 
Also, Neli hates Linux. He thinks Linux Oh, no. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? This is the year for Linux on the desktop. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Google finally made the move. By the way, speaking of laptops, Virtual listeners might know about my beloved 15-inch MacBook Pro GPU. You may have yeah. heard its fan several times throughout this episode. <laughs> Apple recalled mid-2015 MacBook Pros uh, for battery issues. There's a battery yeah. replacement program now. Um, uh -huh. But the issues are apparently so severe, the instruction is stop using your laptop until the battery is replaced, which seems very significant uh, to know about a laptop four years after you released it, uh, that there's a battery issue of this significance. But to Apple's credit, they said it. They're replacing the batteries. You don't have to like buy a new laptop. It's not some like conspiracy theory to get you to buy a touch bar laptop. You can do it. This is important, however, because the 2015 MacBook Pro is it's like the one people were still buying. Yeah. Right. It's like there's like a a black market for these uh, because people don't want touch bar ones. So it's it's good. But I, I, I think I think I'm done. Are you gonna go get your battery replaced, or are you gonna go get a another computer? It's like, what if I get the battery replaced, but then I have this laptop? And like I'm still doomed with this fan noise and extremely slow, discrete GPU that does nothing. Mm. I, I I think that mm -hmm. the you, if you want a big screen, I think you should look <laughs> at a Surface Book. All right, I'll think about think it. Think about it. Well, I mean, now that I love Windows so much. Yeah. Remember, you heard me say that. <laughs> All right, Dieter, you, on, you put the video game in here. Addy's here. I trust you to have a video game conversation. This is your moment. I was so excited for Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I played a little bit of the RPG when it came out, but I mostly played Shadowrun. Uh, and then everyone got lost their mind because uh, some PR genius has manufactured that this moment that we're having in our culture right now, that Keanu is an angel and perfect. Um, and I'm sure he is a very nice guy. Uh, but because he was in the video game, everybody lost their minds. Uh, and that's fine. Um, but then I watched the preview, and it was um, like the the main character was like, I guess just like a dude bro. And um, I felt a little disappointed. And then, um, Addy, you actually played it. No, I saw there was a, a hands-off demo. They have the thing at E3 where they show you someone else playing the game and are like, this is only for you. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I and, saw a mission. And it's, it looks like pretty, like, you know, here's a crazy world, and at the end of the day, like, you shoot guns and upgrade your character. Yeah. I will say I, I, I know the name of a video game already. I'm so proud of myself. I watched the <laughs> Death Stranding trailer, and it's terrifying. It's super weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, if you're, I will say we're at the point in our culture where, like, giant companies are like, you've been waiting for this game. Now this trailer will play. And it's like, oh, shit, I'm a baby, and I'm coming out of a birth canal. Like, that is a, that is a place that we are. The thing that worries yep. me about e about the cyberpunk thing is that obviously a game cannot can be not representative of like E3 missions are very different from games that actually come out. But usually you try to show off your weirdest thing. Like I was going mm. back and looking at Dishonored 2's gameplay at E3 a few years ago, and it was this crazy clockwork mansion where you can or like this thing where you can manipulate time. Like everybody tries to show off their weirdest stuff, and here it is like, yeah. well, you can open a door with your robot arms, or you can shoot somebody. Yeah, which, I mean, if you're going to make a video game about like a realistic future of what's actually going to happen, I guess, yeah, that's that's right. That's what the robot arms are going to do when we get them. All right. Zelda. Yeah. I said it. That's the other game I know. Okay. <laughs> Dieter has a huge note in the rundown that says we're going to talk about video games without talking about Madden or Zelda. But I defeated Since him. Since Neli has broached <laughs> the subject on a scale of like most open world being Breath of the Wild and then the least open world being like one of those like 
I don't know, like Final Fantasy VIII or something, you know, like a completely on-rails RPG. Like, where would you... Is, is Cyberpunk, like, more open than Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead or, like, less open? So that's the weird thing, is that the thing that CD Projekt Red does is, like, these giant open worlds with relationships and all that. And the thing they showed off seemed much more like an immersive sim. It was like they were trying to make Deus Ex or Dishonored, but didn't really care about any of that gameplay. I would have been much more interested if they had shown... What happens if you go and, like, hijack a hover car? Or what happens, right. what are your romance options? Just anything except what they showed. All right. When's it come out? April 16, 2020, the same year as the original <laughs> tabletop RPG was wow. set. Okay. That's great. All right. That's enough video game talk, nerds. <laughs> Sorry, this is like the nerdiest <laughs> show in the world. All right. That's it. We're, we're way over. We got we to gotta wrap it up. Thank you, Addy, for being here. I always love it when you're on. Thank you. If we get Josh Hawley on the show, we're gonna we're gonna really we're gonna team up on that one. It's gonna be fun. Paul, uh-huh. thank you for your Bitcoin. I'm gonna thank everyone individually. Oh, today. Right. I'd like to thank Paul for for Bitcoin emotions. You're welcome. Dieter, you're just ambiently thanked. Okay. No, I just thank you. Thank him on signal. And I want to thank Jackson Hayes for writing me a song about Section 230. (laughs) Play the song. Don't show me platforms are not required to be neutral by law. There is no publisher platform distinction by law. All right, that was the Vergecast. Please rate and review us. Just give us the five stars. I know we didn't earn it this week, but give (laughs) us the five stars. We really appreciate it. You can listen to Why'd You Push That Button, which is a tremendous show. Ashley uh, did a whole piece about Jibo, the robot that people loved and that I was dying. You should just listen to that episode of Watch Push a Button. You should read the story on the website. There's some like tremendous photos of people in their Jeebos in that story. Check that out. Obviously, please listen to the episode with Casey about Facebook moderators. It is very important. You can listen to Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. You can listen to Pivot with Kara and Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway with Simon Code is very, very funny. And you can listen to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. All great. All available to you wherever podcasts are. That's it. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll. Paul. That's not 230.com. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.